Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. The Liberal government has been playing defense for days now, facing political backlash against their plan to give only some Canadians a break on the carbon tax. The policy backflip will see a three-year carbon pricing pause on home heating oil, which is mostly used in Atlantic Canada. That had some premiers calling for a break on all forms of home heating fuel, like natural gas. The Prime Minister immediately ruled that out. There will absolutely not be any other carve-outs or suspensions of the price on pollution. This is designed to phase out home heating oil. Opposition leader Pierre Polyev has now introduced a motion calling for Ottawa to extend the home heating freeze for all households. Give them a pause on the carbon tax because a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. The vote on the Conservative motion is expected tomorrow and it has the support of the NDP. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Employment Minister Randy Boissonneau. Randy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Mercedes. You're out there in Alberta. I have to imagine that uh, your office is getting some slightly irritated calls from constituents potentially. My question to you as an Alberta MP is, do you think this program change is fair? Well, actually, if we take a look at the details, Mercedes, what we've done with this program is we've accelerated the replacement of uh, home heating oil with heat pumps across the country. And we've started in Atlantic Canada. We've got deals in place with some provincial uh, governments now. And as I said yesterday at a housing uh, forum here in Edmonton, uh, I invite the Alberta government to join us so that Albertans who are using home heating oil can also have the same program and make sure that they get uh, heating pumps to get off of fuel, which is four times more expensive than natural gas and twice as polluting. Uh, if you take a look, uh, Mercedes, at some things that Albertans have benefited from that other parts of the country haven't been able to benefit from, we have electricity generating plants right now that are using natural gas that have been grandfathered into the system uh, well past 2035. And, you know, as I said at the uh, housing forum uh, yesterday, we built a pipeline and TMX is going to get completed and that pipeline uh, disproportionately benefits Albertans, uh, the Alberta coffers. It also benefits the federal treasury. And so when you have a, a country as vast and, and regionally diverse as ours, there are going to be some policy decisions that are going to you know, take a regional focus but have a national impact. And that's what we've done here. And I think the last thing I'd say is any rural Albertan that's getting the top up for our climate action incentive program, that that top up is now going to double. So it is a national program. I think it got rolled out as a as, a, as regional only program. And that's simply uh, not the case. So Albertans have the ability to participate in this program. And I hope that the government of Alberta will work with us to make those heat pumps available right here in my own home province. How many Albertans use heating oil? Because my understanding from looking at the statistics is that it is overwhelmingly Atlantic Canada, which would also be suggested by how your government presented this program, which was the prime minister in front of his entire Atlantic caucus. It's a great question. And I think Atlantic caucus was was obviously pushing for this. It's a it's an important piece. And if we take a look at who uses home heating Mercedes, it tends to be the lowest income Canadians, a lot of uh, single female seniors. And what we're going to do now is we're going to be able to make sure that they get these home, these heat pumps uh, that's going to be affordable for them. Like these things cost 20 grand. So $20,000 for somebody on low income, that would be you'd never be able to do that. And so this is going to get people off home heating oil forever. It's going to put more money in their 
pocket because they're going to go to a, a lower source of uh, like a cheaper energy uh, source to heat their homes. And, you know, we're talking about thousands of uh, Albertans here being able to take advantage of this program. But we got, you know, four and a half million Albertans. I live in in Edmonton Centre and we're actually, my partner David and I are actually looking at the Greener Homes Grant and the Greener Homes Loan, which provides Albertans and Canadians a $5,000 grant and a $40,000 tax-free loan if we want to switch, you know, an old furnace like I have to a high-efficiency one or to a heat pump. So that's in place. And just uh, maybe to clear the air, there are more people who heat their homes in uh, using heating oil in Northern Ontario than all the Atlantic provinces combined. So this is why it's a it's a national appeal to premiers uh, across the country to have, to have them join us. And right now we have Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and Labrador as part of the program. And we're fully expecting and, and we'll be hopeful to see more premiers join us. And I hope that Premier Smith is one of those premiers that will join us in this ability to transition uh, Canadians from heating oil to heat pumps. I think that some Albertans would take issue with the comparison of TMX being built, which is in the, the national interest and, and does not put money into every single Albertan's pocket or, or people who are struggling to pay their bills right now in the way that this program uh, will put money into, into those who are low income. And I don't think that, that folks are against people who are struggling to pay their bills getting help doing that. Uh, but the question is, the decision to step back on the carbon tax specifically versus just creating a separate program that would help with those heat pumps. Do you think that the decision to, to do this backflip on the carbon tax undermines your argument that it's not presenting undue financial hardship on people who are low income and trying to pay their bills in a time when we're seeing all kinds of inflation and difficulty with the cost of living? The short answer is not at all. If we take a look at how the uh, the Climate Action Incentive Program uh, applies in uh, the country where there's a federal backstop, like here in Alberta, for example, eight out of 10 families get more money back from the federal government from collecting uh, the uh, price on pollution. Then they actually pay for, uh, you know, the price on pollution when it comes to their home heating source or, uh, you know, filling up the pump. In the case of Atlantic Canada and in the case of this project across the country, it's a three-year pause so that we can make sure that we can get this transition done. And but Randy, that, if, if people are getting all this money back, why, if it is, you know, basically net zero cost to them, why would you need to reverse that to help them pay? I think that is the inconsistency that people here are struggling with. Well, I think it's because home heating oil is so much more polluting. And so it's got a higher profile, like it has a higher GHG profile. And so the price on pollution applies but, there. But that doesn't change the amount that the person paying is struggling with their bills, right? I mean, there are people who have natural gas in Alberta who are struggling just as much or in B.C. or in, uh, you know, Ontario as folks are in Atlantic Canada. And they don't understand why the federal government won't consider helping them alleviate their struggle. Why not extend this to other parts of the country? But I think if you take a look at where we started this in, in Atlantic Canada, we're also talking about areas, what we call energy poverty. So what does that mean? Areas where there simply isn't another solution. Like if you're in parts of rural Newfoundland and Labrador, if you're in parts of Northern Ontario, like you can't actually, there's no other source. And so we needed this three-year time period to be able to make sure that we had people to apply to get the heat pump installed and then be on the other side of that, not paying as much money, like to your point, saving more money in their pockets and being able to uh, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. I, mean, I hear what you're saying on heat pumps, but your government could have created a program 
that was purely centered around that. You didn't have to have a rebate on the carbon tax to that, that pause. And that's where your political adversaries are seizing on and saying, this is proof that it's not really about changing behavior. This is proof that it is not, in fact, financially neutral. If it is all of those things, why make this decision, which, which seems to kind of have blown up politically for you? It's because of the high uh, GHG component and the high cost of home heating oil, which is has nothing to do with carbon pricing. It has to do with the actual price of home heating oil, which is high, uh, two to four times higher than natural gas. And the fact that it's two times more polluting makes that, quite frankly, the worst kind of way to heat your home. And guess what? For thousands of Canadians, it's the only option they have. And so this was a compassionate, responsible approach to making sure that our carbon pricing system continues to have integrity across the country. And look, the Conservatives were always going to come at us when we found a solution for this issue because their leader, Pierre Polyev, simply doesn't believe in climate change and actually threw out what they all ran on last time, which was an actual plan to use technological changes to somehow magically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So I'm not surprised at all that the Conservatives have pounced on that and the New Democrats are looking for a way for their polls to come up in, in the, you know, their numbers to come up in the polls. What we've done is made sure that our climate change process, our climate pricing pollution process can be there for the long term. We've done something that applies not just in Atlantic Canada, but across the country. And when we get on the other side of this, people are going to save money and they're going to lower their GHGs. And I think that's a reasonable, responsible approach for any government to uh, take because look, the government is built on, on, uh, on, on, on compromises and solutions that make sense regionally and across the country. And that's what we've done here. Randy, always nice to talk to a fellow Albertan. Thanks for coming on the show today to answer our questions. <laughs> Thanks, Mercedes. All the best. Take care. As Israeli ground forces move deeper into Gaza, the families of Israeli hostages are growing increasingly concerned about their safety nearly one month after they were taken. Families have been holding vigils and protests to pressure the Israeli government and the world to get their loved ones released. About 240 people were taken hostage during the attack by Hamas. Two Canadians are missing. One of them is Vivian Silver. I sat down with her son, Hen Zeigen, when he was here in Ottawa to raise awareness about the hostages. And joining him is Erwin Kotler, former Liberal Justice Minister and Canada's first special envoy on preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. We talk about the hostages and why never again must be more than just words. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I know under very sad and difficult circumstances. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Hen, if I could begin with you, what have you heard about your mother from the IDF, from the Israeli authorities? What have they been able to share about what they believe happened to her and where she may be being held? About a week after she disappeared, uh, we had contact um, from the Israeli government. They told us that uh, her phone was geolocated in Gaza. Um, and. Uh, based only on that information, they are considering her as a hostage. But other than that, no one has seen any evidence, any videos, no one knows um, what may have happened to her. What is this experience like for you? It's very hard to describe. It's uh, feeling um, up in the air. Uh, we are doing... Um, 
all that we ca can based on the belief that she is alive and well and all that we can to um, to uh, raise awareness to the hostages um, in hope that we will get any information and uh, we will be able to see her back soon. Um, I just came back from um, a visit to Israel uh, where I went to um, support my family and my community on Kibbutz Beri where she lived. Uh, I went to uh, funerals, I made shiva calls. Um, the grieving families um, often look at me and my brother um, as if we need to be comforted because the sentiment is that they have closure and they can grieve and we are being uh, held up in the air and, and we, we don't know anything. Um, for me, um, at least, uh, I feel there is um, still hope um, that she is alive and well and, and that we will be able to see her back with us. And you are just so incredibly brave to be doing this and I know it's very difficult and we so appreciate you sharing your time with us and, and with our viewers because I can't imagine being in your shoes and, and having to speak about this or when I know that you have worked on issues around human rights and concerns about anti-Semitism for years. You've been with these family members as they engage with the Canadian government and with governments around the world. We're starting to hear some stories of the IDF freeing some hostages. What is your impression of, of where this is going to go with the hostages and the hopes for getting them back as soon as <clears throat> possible? Well, you know, we see the hostages as, as really a, a looking glass into uh, horrors too terrible to be believed, but not too terrible to have happened. I was in Israel that October, Saturday, October 7th. We were there to celebrate my uh, son's marriage, and it ended up becoming, as it's been said, the worst day in Jewish history uh, since uh, the Holocaust. And the immediate and unconditional return of the hostages is for us a standalone obligation. It's a humanitarian imperative of the first order. It's a moral imperative because their ongoing uh, detention and forced disappearances is, is really a torture. It's a legal imperative of the First Order because every day that they are being held is an ongoing crime against humanity as it all began, and it's an international legal responsibility. States are obliged to do everything they can to secure the release of hostages. So we have recommended an international uh, coalition uh, for that purpose. Uh, at this point, there's been no real movement on the matter of the hostages, and we say it's a matter of urgency, and it's a matter of international responsibility. And if your mother could speak right now, what message do you think she would have for the world? My mother was a um, um, peace activist all her life. She uh, believed in, in reaching peaceful agreement, building uh, peace from the bottom up. Um, she devoted her life to um, garnering understanding between Israelis and Palestinians, organizing encounters. Um, she um, constantly um, uh, opposed uh, any use of violence. Um, on either side. Uh, it would be very hard for me right now to imagine what state she is in. Uh, I know that 
one of the heartbreaking consequences of this attack is that many of her friends um, that survived the attack, many of the people in my community uh, in Kibbutz Be'eri um, who shared these views with her, who struggled for a peaceful solution, um, they have completely lost faith. Um, um, so I hope um, if we see her again soon that she is still the hopeful, hopeful and, and strong woman that we know. One of the questions I was hoping to put to both of you is the ripple effect that this has had globally. Uh, the concern in the Jewish community of rising anti-Semitism. I watched the videos of what happened in the airport in Dagestan uh, where an El Al flight was surrounded by a mob looking for Jews on the flight. I am hearing from, from Jewish Canadians that they are feeling fear like they never have before. Erwin, what are your concerns about, about where this is going after the worst day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust? Well, I'm, I'm very concerned because when I concluded my mandate, and that was before these atrocities began. I said then that we were witnessing the most alarming rise in anti-Semitism since audits began uh, 50 years ago. Yet the uh, rise has been explosive since these mass atrocities occurred. You would have thought it would have been the other way around. And we're seeing now a, an intensifying, resurgent, metastifying, global anti-Semitism. And Canadian Jews are being caught up uh, in this uh, kind of global uh, hatred, which, as I say, is metastasizing as we meet. Are you concerned about that, Hannah, as, as you watch what's unfolding in the world and, and what this may have triggered? Yes, of course I am. Um, I currently live in Connecticut, uh, in the United States. Um, the feeling uh, in Israel is that our um, faith in our, in our safety has been compromised. And um, for me, it, it, it might be easy to think that, okay, I'm right now in my little corner in the world, um, detached from all this, but uh, as I see uh, the sentiment um, in universities, as I see all the hatred, um, it, it, it makes me feel that um, there is no real safe place uh, for me. Erwin, you've worked for years um, to try to address anti-Semitism, and also you've spoken fearlessly about the role of Iran in all of this, including backing groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. And you've been critical that the Canadian government has not done enough to prevent Iran from operating in Canada, from gathering funds here to fund operations around the globe that can be used to carry out terrorist attacks. Well, you know, it's about 12 years ago when I was a Liberal member, of Parliament, I then proposed that the IRGC put on the terrorist list, and I reaffirmed this in my meetings that we've had now with the government and opposition uh, leaders. And Iran, you know, is has been arming, uh, training, uh, financing, incentivizing, supporting, and celebrating uh, Hamas and and Hezbollah's terrorist proxies. So we have to hold uh, really uh, Iran accountable. It's part of this axis of of evil uh, that is uh, itself uh, becoming so much more prevalent. And we have to appreciate with regard to anti-Semitism, it's not just threatening to Jews. It's toxic 
to our democracy. It's an assault on our common humanity. It's the canary in the mineshaft of global evil. And so we need a, a whole of government responsibility and involvement to combat it. And we need a, a whole of society uh, to combat it because the hatred that begins with the Jews won't end with Jews. And we have to combat, combat all forms of hatred uh, in our society. Erwin and Hen, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so sorry to meet you under these circumstances, but we appreciate your time and you speaking with such love about your mother and all of our thoughts are with you and your family and your community. Thank you. Now for one last thing. The South China Sea was the scene of another extremely dangerous interception by the Chinese military. This time, the Canadian Armed Forces says a Canadian cyclone helicopter was dangerously and unprofessionally intercepted by a Chinese fighter jet. Defence Minister Bill Blair says the Canadian aircraft was in international airspace conducting routine exercises. The helicopter pilot had to maneuver to avoid the flares and reduce the risk of ingesting a, ingesting a flare into the helicopter's rotor and intakes. This encounter was also deemed unsafe. My sources say this intercept put the crew of the helicopter in significant jeopardy and risked a catastrophic crash, something that could be interpreted as an escalation of aggression by China. Global News has previously witnessed two dangerous intercepts in person in the last six months, one aboard HMCS Montreal and one just a couple of weeks ago on an Aurora aircraft. While our focus is on the ever-worsening crisis in the Middle East, this incident is a reminder that Canada can't let its guard down in other global arenas. That's our show for today. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block.